words going through my head. Yeah. And uh, I'm not sure if they're the right lyrics, and I'm not going to sing them to have you confirm, but thank you, sister. Welcome to our church. Just a few housekeeping announcements. There's restrooms downstairs. We don't pass around the plate for offering. We got rid of that during the pandemic. So there's a tithes and offering chest in the back. Uh, you can put your tithes and offerings in that as the Lord leads. And some important announcements. Moms and dads, after service today, immediately after, immediately after service, the youth choir is going to practice over in the cottage, so get the little voices over there. And then when they're done practicing, they're coming back here for a very short time of getting situated for where they're going to be sitting up here. And next week, we have the youth choir uh, blessing us with their music. To, yes, sir. Yeah, fellowship hall is open, so moms and dads, you can hang out in the fellowship hall. Um, it's your church campus, so make yourselves at home, and uh, I'm sure somebody will clean up after you, just like at home. Right, moms? Um, my sisters never cleaned up when I was growing up. They wouldn't do dishes, laundry, or clean up. Okay, today is the last day to sign up to RSVP for the Fall Fellowship. So I would encourage you, change your schedules around and show up because it is a, a fantastic time. Great food. Uh, there'll be a sign-up genie going around for the food you're supposed to bring. And there's cookies that you need to be making so Pastor Wayne can test them out. Um, now, do you just want keto cookies? No keto. Okay. <laughs> We're going with real stuff. Once a year. Okay. Uh, but please, RSVP to reformationfarms at gmail.com, I think is the correct address. It should be in the bulletin or an email I sent out. We have our annual meeting coming up on the 30th, and we will meet, uh, we will hold our meeting right after the fall fellowship meal. So those are the announcements, and now. Uh, we're going to turn to Scripture reading. Here's Luke chapter 5. And you can follow along in your copy of God's Word, but we're going to do the whole chapter, so hang on. Luke chapter 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats in the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've, we've toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come help. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. 
But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some of the men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Men, excuse me, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on, lying on, and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a 
parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. And new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. That is the reading of God's word. May it be blessed. Thank you, Andy, for reading this section from the life of Christ. And today I'll be preaching on considering Jesus. We need to think more about Jesus. It's one of the reasons we're reading and opening the service from the life of Christ. John wrote and ended his gospel this way. Now there are also many other things Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself couldn't contain the books that would be written. Let's think on Christ today. I'll give you a moment to prepare your heart to worship Jesus in this day. To pray privately. Remember that if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Call and ask him to illuminate your heart, to hear and heed his word today. Take a moment privately where you're at to pray, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you today to worship you in spirit and truth. We're thankful that by your spirit you have given us the very truth of Jesus Christ written in your word now and forevermore. Those things that are essential for us to grow in grace and the knowledge of you. I pray our focus would indeed be on Jesus Christ, that we would continue to behold him to understand him more and more. I pray that our thoughts would not be those that are routine, but that those that are a reality of this great and wonderful truth. I pray that you grant comfort through Jesus Christ to those that are in situations in which they need your comfort, your grace, your mercy, even now. I pray, Father, that you will convict each one of us for ways in which we have gone astray from your truth. That that reprimand might be that that brings us back to repentance and communion with Jesus Christ this day. I pray, Father, that you would give us great joy in Jesus Christ, in a world that is filled with misery for the most part. I pray that we will triumph and transcend that in our union with Jesus Christ. That we would have a longing and a looking forward to that soon return. That ceremony described as the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
in which your people will be gathered together in a beautiful celebration, a great joy and privilege to be with you. I pray, Father, that you'll give us patience to wait. Maybe fulfill those things that you have called us to do in the time that you have given to us in this day and the days each day that you have give, give to us to truly number them and walk in wisdom, redeem the time because certainly the days are evil. But may we not be discouraged, but look forward to a bright and glorious day in your presence in fullness of joy. May we hear and heed the words of Christ today. I pray in his name. Amen. Well, Ephesians 1.7 tells us, In him we have redemption through his blood, according to the riches of his grace. His grace is sufficient and is greater than all our sin. Praise the Lord. Let's stand and take our hymn books and let's turn to number 163. And we'll sing, Wonderful Grace of Jesus, Greater Than All My Sin.
this morning. Let's turn number 545. 545, living for Jesus. Walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Beautiful hymn of devotion and dedication to our Lord and Savior Jesus. 545. Turn to 216. 
216, O sing a song of Bethlehem, and you, Bethlehem, out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel, Matthew 2, 6. church don't know if you were aware of it uh, or not this morning but we're all going to read scripture this morning I'm going to need your help as we read through the great crescendo of the great Hallel Psalm 136 you can find it in your pew Bible I'm sorry I actually don't know the page because we were kind enough to put it on the inside of your bulletin so you can find it there as well at the end of each verse 
I need you, I'll read the first half of the verse, and at that point, I need you to read the second half of the verse, this glorious phrase, for his steadfast love endures forever. And that's what we will do for every verse in this psalm. Those words, steadfast love, in many translations you'll find it loving kindness. In the Hebrew, it is one word, the word kesed. And it speaks of Yahweh's covenant love toward his chosen people. At the time of the writing of this psalm, God's chosen people would have been looking forward to the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in which all nations will be blessed through his descendants. And we today, as God's chosen people, can now look back at that fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done on the cross to cover the sins of his chosen people. One more thought on steadfast love. It includes God's mercy and his grace. And a truth that I've been reminded of many times this morning is that, amazingly, every time that I sin, if I will simply go to him, and ask his forgiveness, he will forgive me. If you are here today and you know that you are not one of God's people, you can come. No matter how much sin you've committed, no matter how long, you can come to him. In your own mind's eye, you can ask his forgiveness. And he will forgive you. Please think on that as we repeat this phrase today. I begin in verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And brought Israel out from among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for 
and Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. And rescues us from our foes. He gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Amen. Let us pray. Father, I pray that anyone within the sound of my voice who does not know you, to them, Father, I pray that you would show your steadfast love. I pray that you would continue our worship of you today, that we would think of your steadfast love, that we would think of you, that we would think of Christ who sustained this and accomplished this. Father, I pray that you would help us now tune our hearts and minds to listen to your word and to understand. I pray that you would bless the offerings given today to further your kingdom. Father, I pray that Jesus Christ would be the light of our lives, that he would be everything we live for, that we would think of him, that we would love him. I pray that he would be the food that we eat. I pray that he would be what we live off of. Please help us in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's take our hymn books once more and stand and turn to number 83. Number 83, Be Thou My Vision. Psalm 16 says, I have set the Lord always before me. Blake, Amber, and Church. This morning I invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to move to the next chapter. But really a continuation of the same thought and the thought that is throughout the book of Hebrews. It is this one, Jesus Christ, who we've been talking about in this service and the next one to come and the next one following and on until Jesus comes. In fact, the charge here in chapter 3, in verse 1, if you notice this little phrase, two words, consider Jesus. And that's what I want us to do today. Consider Jesus. That, that should be the thought that captivates our mind always. This consider Jesus, this phrase here, is it's not a suggestion. It's a command. It's a command to 
Keep Jesus in the forefront of your mind at all times. It means to consider and give complete and diligent attention. I remember in time management seminars that I've gone through in my career in the past, one of the little things they would do would be to keep something on your mind might be to take a little dot and I suppose nail polish or something that would stick to the face of a watch and put a little dot right there. And so then every time you looked at it, it would remind you of something. But in your mind, this is, is the focal point, Jesus Christ, and to consider him. The consideration here is to fix your mind with all attention on Jesus Christ all the time. A.W. Pink, who I really enjoyed reading through his commentary through the book of Hebrews, defines it this way, considering Jesus. He means it, it to behold him. And I like that term, behold him. Not simply by a passing glance or giving to him an occasional thought, but by, being, but by the heart being fully occupied with him. Think about that this week. As you go about your daily life, consider Jesus. Not as occasional thought, but to be occupied at all times with him. Clearly, this thought has occupied the preacher here in Hebrews. It, it is something that he emphasizes from the very beginning to the end of this sermon. He's emphasizing the supremacy of Jesus and therefore needs to be in our thoughts. The first few verses, he talks about Jesus as our, our hope, our confession, our eternal hope. This focus on Jesus, it demonstrates here in chapter 3, he's going to move on to the superiority of Jesus over Moses, and hence Jesus should be first in our thoughts to this particular audience that he's addressing. Thus far in chapter 1, if you remember, he opened it up that way, saying that Jesus is superior and should be in your thoughts greater than any prophet that has come before. Chapter 1 and verse 2. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, superior to all that came before. And might I add, he is superior that all might come after. There is no greater voice. There is no greater prophet. There is no Muhammad that will come forth and provide additional information. There's no cult leader that comes to, to give you more information. There are no people getting random thoughts from God, from their own mind. It is Jesus. He has spoken. It is recorded in his word. He is superior, verse 4 of chapter 1, to angels, in that he inherits a more excellent name than they. Now in chapter 3, one more figure is brought forward, and that is Moses. 
Jesus is superior, greater than Moses. Now, this may not have as great an impact to this current culture as it might in Judaism and particularly in the first century. The Jews had a high regard and still do for Moses. Moses was associated with the law and in some fashion really with all of the Old Testament. Jesus said, remember to those that were his detractors, if you would have believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote of me. Moses was an important person in Judaism. MacArthur summarizes this concept in his commentary. He says this section, that's chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, presents the superiority of Jesus over Moses. The Lord has spoken, remember, to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, Exodus thirty-three eleven. And certainly given the law to him, as I've mentioned, Nehemiah chapter 9, 13. The commandments and the rituals of the law were the Jews' supreme priorities, and to them, Moses and the law were synonymous. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament refer to the commands of God as the laws of Moses. See Joshua 8, 1 Kings 2, Luke chapter 2, Acts 13. Yet here in this text, the preacher of Hebrews says that Jesus is supreme. As great as Moses is, he doesn't compare to Jesus, and so therefore he says, in contrast to considering Moses, consider Jesus. I might also say that um, perhaps this direct statement about comparing Moses you, you may not uh, find as much connection there, but I would also say this would apply to anyone else who is thought of as some sort of religious leader, some pope or some cult leader. Jesus is far more superior to any of them, and he is indeed our authority, and in considering him, we will then have confidence in him, Jesus Christ, as our eternal hope. So let's read it in context, this consideration that Hebrews, that this book of Hebrews calls us to, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all, his, in all God's house as a servant, to testify that to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. 
Let us pray. Father, indeed, I pray that we would hold fast to our confidence in Jesus Christ. I pray that our thoughts would be drawn increasingly to Jesus Christ more and more in evil days, in days of good, in days of plenty, in days of famine, in days of frightful times, and fearful of wars and rumors of wars, of annihilation and disease. I pray our confidence would be in Jesus Christ, our only true hope. It is in his name I pray. Amen. Well, I'll unpack this text to some degree as time permits. And I have a few questions of the text in and of itself. The theme, again, is to consider Jesus. What I would like for you to get out of this is to take this in a very practical way during the week and focus your thought more on Jesus Christ this week. It will be, you will find great benefit to it. In context, the preacher gives us some of the reasons to do so and answers some of the questions that I have about this particular text. And, and that is, the first thought is, who should consider Jesus? Here in the text, note here, it says at the very beginning, therefore. So it, it is building off of what he has just said. Therefore is calling us to consider this person, Jesus, who is indeed God incarnate. It refers to him, if you notice as we read the text, that the builder is indeed God. And Jesus is called the builder. And so here it is uh, doubling back on these concepts again and again. In our consideration of Jesus, this is not a prophet. This is not an angel. This is not a great religious leader like Moses. This is God. God incarnate. This therefore then draws us back. He, he's one more time reminding us of what he has just gone through and said. And if you haven't been with us, even if you have, I think it's helpful to get a reminder again. And I encourage you to, to read chapter 1, to, to read chapter 2, and then see how it flows into chapter 3 where he says, Therefore, consider Jesus. In chapter 1, if you remember, seven dogmatic statements are given to Jesus, kind of in a rapid fire. In verse 2 of chapter 1, he says that he is the heir of all things. Then he says he's the creator of all things in verse 2. He is the radiance or the brightness of the glory of God. That is, he is, the, uh, uh, he is God himself. Verse 3, he is the exact imprint of his nature. That is, he is God. So Jesus, the man, is God incarnate, verse 3 of chapter 1. For the, the fifth statement that he makes is that not only that, but he is also the sustainer of all things. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. When he's done upholding it, it will fall apart. You, you have no fear if you consider Jesus. Trust in him. Yes, make uh, preparations about things. Do things judiciously and with great wisdom. But you can't sustain the universe by the word of your power. He can. And he is. 
and he will. He is Savior. And that is this great, deep, personal statement in verse 3. He makes purification for sin. It is only through Jesus Christ that your sins would be atoned for. He is indeed Lord. He sits down, verse 3, at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the sovereign Lord who is enthroned at this very moment. Speaking why you should consider then the preacher here in Hebrews follows those seven statements with seven rhetorical questions based on cross-references from the Old Testament. You should consider him because, number one, he's the only begotten, verse 5 from Psalm 2, because he is the, the Son of God, 2 Samuel 7. Because he is the firstborn. Remember, prototokos, he, he is the, the first, the, this unique one. Let all the angels worship him from Deuteronomy 32. He is the sovereign Lord, verse 7 from Psalm 104. He is the eternal king, verse 8 from Psalm 45. He is the immutable, that is a, the never-changing creator, verse 10 from Psalm 102. He is indeed the Lord of all, verse 13 from Psalm 110. Consider Jesus. Consider him for who he is, all that he has done, and not all that he is continuing to do. That will put your mind to rest, and that will give you hope in hopeless times. It will give you great courage conviction, and comfort. The consideration here is to look at his person and his work, and specifically, as the preacher of Hebrews unfolds, it is mediator, his role as mediator between God and man, his role is mediatorial work for you in particular. And to consider him is to, another word to use for that, would be to behold him. To think about Christ. And by doing so, this is the means by which you will be conformed to his image. Paul would say in Second Corinthians 3, we with an unveiled face, Unveiled in that this full and final revelation has been given to us by none other than Jesus Christ, an unveiled face, an unveiled face because it's no longer veiled also by, by sin, which he has taken away, illuminated through the Holy Spirit. We with this unveiled face, those that are regenerate in Christ, behold the glory of the Lord. Do you see it? Do you see the excellency? Do you see the beauty? Do you see the glory? By doing so, you're transformed then into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is a dynamic spiritual work. This is not mechanical, going reading through these things and just thinking. These are a dynamic work done by the Holy Spirit to transform the believer, to sanctify, we might say, the believer, to conform them more into the image of Christ. Look to Him. That's the charge. That is the command. Considering Jesus is beholding him. It's the means by which you're going to be sanctified through the power of the Spirit. You have trouble with anger? 
lust, anxiety, depression, doubt, pride, envy, greed, ingratitude, granting forgiveness, granting mercy, granting grace, I charge you look to Jesus. Consider him who is, who will enable that virtue in your own life. Now who, as I stated, is to consider Jesus? Note our text, it says, therefore, based on who he is, that would be enough, but who is this addressed to specifically? Do you see the text in verse 1, chapter 3? Holy brothers. This command, this charge to consider Jesus here is a message to the regenerate church. Those who are made holy in Christ, set apart unto Christ, they are called to consider him. It is he, Jesus, chapter 2, verse 11, who is the sanctifier, who sanctifies all that are in him. Now, normally, if you would take a casual glance and thought of considering Jesus, we would think of it in evangelistic terms, calling people to look to Jesus, as well we should. And I do. That's a great way to preach Christ, is to explain him, to talk about him, to point to him, and call others to consider. However, right here, the thought is to, and the directive is, to the church, to keep Jesus Christ in our thoughts, to focus diligently on him, to consider him, if you will, keeping our thoughts focused on Jesus as our daily delight. Our, our memory verse this week is from Galatians 2.20, and it talks about living by Christ thus living by faith. Another way to think about this consideration in your thoughts, another expression of it that is parallel, you can find it in John chapter 15 if you wish to go look and then consider at some great length on your own in days to come. This idea of considering Jesus is parallel, I would say, to abiding in Jesus. This analogy Jesus himself gave in John chapter 15, beginning, and I'll just highlight a couple parts of it, beginning in verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the, in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. All the virtues that you want in your life are going to come about by abiding in Christ. You will need to be in him to begin with. That is truly regenerate. But for those that are regenerate, this is the charge to the church, to you abide in me. Here he's teaching his disciples on the night before his death. He says, I'm, a, I'm the vine, verse 5, and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So, so not only are you going to bear fruit, but bear much fruit. You can't do it apart from me. You can do no thing, nothing. 
If you don't abide in him, if that's not part of your life, if you're in a church and involved in some sort of organization, but your life isn't considering Jesus, be greatly warned. You don't abide in me, you're thrown away like a branch that withers. Branches are gathered and thrown in the fire and burn. It, it, It may be indicative of the fact that your, this failure to consider Christ, the failure to abide in him, may be evidence that you're not really united with him. That's the point. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Why? Because you will be asking in accordance to his will. Get your prayers answered. Consider Christ. Abide in him. Because it glorifies God. My, this, my Father, is glorified. So that you will, you will bear much fruit. All these virtues we want. Love, joy, peace, patience, self-control. All of the fruit of the Spirit. It'll prove and show evidence that you are my disciples. As the Father loved me, so I loved you. And I, I can't, and I have a hard time getting over that too. Can you imagine this? This love that God the Father has for the Son is the love the Son has for those that are in Him. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. Do you want the fullness of joy in your life? Abide in Christ. Consider him. Back to our text. It's these holy ones to whom it's addressed, those that have been made holy by Christ and his work. But he adds another word to the word holy, and that is he calls those that are in Christ brothers. Chapter 2 And verse 11, if you remember, this one who made us holy in him, this sanctifier who sanctifies, he's not ashamed, 2.11 of Hebrews, not ashamed to call them brothers. You have some family members or friends that you're kind of ashamed of? Why? Why? Because who they are, what they've done, or what you expect them perhaps to do. Here is the, the work of Christ you have to, that we're called to consider. That he has united us to him. And therefore, he is not ashamed then to call us brothers. This is speaking of the condescension of Jesus who is come together in the church as a family, adopted sons and daughters, who he's made heirs of a kingdom and given them this privilege of spiritual brotherhood. He's not ashamed of them because their union with Christ is based on his righteousness. All shame, all guilt, to which you rightly merit, has been born by Jesus Christ. 
And in this way, we have a unique spiritual heritage and union with God where he calls us brothers. Chapter 2, remember, he, it's explained. I, I will tell your name to my, to my brothers. I mean, to us, we look to Jesus always as Lord, but he's looking to us as brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. What a joy it is. I was downstairs for a moment and walked upstairs and hear the songs of praise to Christ by his people. Listen for that. Consider Jesus when you're singing these hymns, not as some rote ritual and performance, but the reality of which it is. Engage your thoughts and mind. What a beautiful song hymn y'all brought up there, walking through the various and, and poetically done from Bethlehem to Galilee to Nazareth to Calvary. Wasn't that marvelous to frame your thoughts about this one, Jesus Christ? Consider him. Consider Jesus who, you, who, back to our text, it says, holy brethren, consider Jesus. What did he do? He gave you a share in a heavenly calling. This is to emphasize the opposition, if you will, to an earthly calling. Here it's directed at the temporal nature specifically of Judaism. He was a blessing for them to have the covenants, to have the symbolism, to have the religious ritual, these earthly things that worked out in a tangible and a real way in which they could see. But all of them pointed to those earthly fixtures of something far superior, and that is Jesus Christ. And the call is even in the ritual and the symbolism, think of something far greater. Far greater than, as it summarized, as Moses and all of that. The reality is Jesus. And the calling is not one of earthly possessions. It is a heavenly calling. One where can never be taken away. Chapter 11, you can turn or I'll just read it for you. He'll get to this concept again. About the contrast between that which is earthly or temporal and that which is eternal. Hebrews eleven sixteen, for example, is they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What is the city? A heavenly city. A new Jerusalem, if you will. All of that physical reality pointed to this spiritual reality, which is far greater. Consider Jesus. In chapter 12, in verse 22. For these holy brethren, for those that are... In Christ, of those that are made sanctified in him, you have come, 1222 of Hebrews, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. A, note this, heavenly Jerusalem. And to an immeasurable angels in festal gatherings. This is 
pointing to something that is far greater. A kingdom that is not of this world, as Jesus said. A kingdom in, in which people will gather, as he told the woman at the well in John chapter 4, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Not in religious ritual, but in reality. Paul would think of this concept of what God has promised and our relationship to him as a heavenly citizenship. That's who should consider this. This is a message for the church, the holy brothers, partakers of this heavenly calling. Consider Jesus. He's going to then transition now into describing, in verse 1 of chapter 3, this person, Jesus, who we are to consider. And this isn't all, but this is some, certainly. And notice the phraseology back to Hebrews 3.1. Consider Jesus, who is what? The apostle and high priest of our confession. Apostle simply means sent one. We know the formal apostles who Jesus sent specifically when he left in his ascension. But here, Jesus is called an apostle or a sent one, a messenger, if you will, because he was sent from heaven. Not from earth, but from heaven. You remember how chapter 1 opened, as I alluded to it before, that God had spoken in past in many times and ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. God has sent many messengers to speak. He sent the prophets. He even sent and dispatched angels in some specific circumstances to speak on his behalf. But they don't hold a candle to the Son who has come and spoken. Jesus would say, No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man, John 3.13. This is why he would function in his mediator in his work as mediator, because you you can't get there from here. He, He has to come and descend to take you to the Father's house. John 3, 31, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. This is Jesus, the thought of the apostle, the, the, the messenger, the sent one from heaven to earth. He's doing the will of the Father, John six thirty eight. I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And hence, he is considered an apostle of our confession. 
Secondly, note here back in our text in Hebrews 3, it says he is not only apostle, but a high priest. Now, we've introduced that already in chapter 2, and we will go back to that concept time and time again because the book of Hebrews is permeated with this concept of Jesus as high priest. I mentioned it before. No other book in the Bible is, is so exhaustive on the subject. But remember, we're to consider Jesus. And considering him includes considering him in his work as a merciful and faithful high priest. He grants mercy to us from God's perspective and merits faithfulness from our perspective to God and he has granted that to us as well. It is required to meet, it is, we're obligated to meet the requirements of God in faithfulness and perfect obedience. And Jesus, our mediator, has accomplished that. There is only one mediator then and could only be one who is both merciful in perfect mercy, God to us, and faithful, us to God, Jesus Christ the man, Christ Jesus. It is to this high priest we go to make our plea, and so we consider him. One who understands our weakness and has compassion on everyone that comes to him. It is through him and only through his blood that we can come to the throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 10, you can look there or I'll read it for you. He'll mention this, like I said, his mediatorial work quite a bit in this book. Hebrews ten nineteen. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, this is recognizing how we will approach God, we'll do so by Jesus, by his blood that was shed, by a new and living way. By the way, that new and living way is a concept we got from this reading Andy read earlier about new wineskins and old wineskins, this new and living way that he opened us up through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have this great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. That's the imagery of being sanctified, to be able to stand in the very holy place of God. You would need to have your sins purified and your bodies washed, sanctified. Thinking of Jesus, then let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who is promised is faithful. That's how we can stand before him. Consider him. Consider his faithfulness. Thirdly, in considering Christ, we would consider him in particular. Back to our text in chapter 3. Jesus indeed is our 
confession. Consider Jesus, who is our confession, our high priest, our apostle, and he is indeed our confession. You may be familiar, I print it a lot of times in our bulletin here about the, the five solas. It's a summary of some of the theological truths that were hammered out, rediscovered, if you will, during the Reformation and emphasized at that period of time in a responding, in a responding way. But one of them, if you read through there, is solus Christus, Christ alone. This is our confession. This is our creed. This is why when you sing hymns and you look at his hymn books, notice that time and time again, it's about Jesus Christ, some sort of aspect of Jesus Christ. This is what we sing about. This is central to what we do. It's why we put the, the cross back here to, to remind us of his atoning work that he accomplished for us. This is fundamental to the preaching of the gospel that the sent ones from Jesus, his apostles, went forward and did. They preached Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sin. That's what they proclaimed. Paul would tell the church at, at Corinth, who was a church that was kind of a metropolitan church that, that had all kinds of philosophical ideas, that had all kinds of religious practices. Paul walks in that place and says in second in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What he's saying? Paul knew a lot. And he could debate and discuss and point to all kinds of things. Instead, what he did was simply proclaim the truth. Jesus Christ. That was his message. To the Greeks, it was foolishness. To those, those intellectual elites, they said, well, that's not enough. To the religious people, well, they already had some sort of religious effort. It's a stumbling block. And you may get that when you preach Christ, when you share Christ. Some people might think, oh, that's, that's too easy, too simple. Or that's not it at all. Or I have my own practice and my own way. No, just preach Christ. He is our confession. He is our confession of faith. Before I baptize everybody in, in here, and it's one of the most beautiful experiences that I ever get to par partake in, and I hope you find it that way as well as the church gathers around to, to hear this confession before men. Well, I said, what is your confession? And I, merely, I, I nearly weep every time when I hear the baptismal candidate say, Jesus is Lord. And I say, Lord, indeed. Isn't that our confession? That Jesus Christ is Lord? That is central to it. It, it is a response of the believing heart that recognizes that God has raised him from the dead. And as he has been raised from the dead, those that are united with him will also be raised from the dead and saved. For the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. It is the response of a true regenerate heart to confess, indeed, Jesus is Lord. Finally, back to our text in verse 2 of chapter 3. <coughs> I'll give you another note on why you should consider Jesus 
I've already alluded to it to some degree in the fact that he is a high priest and therefore faithful, but here it specifies it and compares it in a good way to Moses who demonstrates, symbolized, or pointed to this perfect one, Jesus Christ. Moses is a type. Jesus is the fulfillment, or we would say anti-type. Moses does so in imperfection. Not everything applies. Jesus does so in perfection. He is the only one who is ultimately and truly faithful. Verse 2 of chapter 3, consider Jesus who is faithful is the point, who is faithful to him who appointed him. That is, God sends the Son, the Son fulfills the will. He says, I am about to do my Father's will. He, he f- accomplishes his will, all that was, has been decreed. And it's comparison to the type, which is Moses. Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. This house, by the way, reference here, is a reference to a family of God. We use that to some degree, if you can remember, if you think studying history and you think about the royal houses in England, Tudor or Windsor. That's the imagery of the house, a family. Faithfulness to his stewardship. That's his primary responsibility, not only to, to fulfill the requirements, but also by the way, not to bring shame to the family <laughs> or to the house. Moses is commended for being faithful and is a type of Christ in that. Moses is obedient to God's commands, what God has called him to. In Numbers chapter 12, I'll just highlight that section for the sake of time. You don't need to turn there. You can if you wish or make a note of it. Here Moses had some opposition from his own family, Aaron and Miriam. They grumbled against Moses. And so God comes down in Numbers chapter 12 and, and verse 5 in a, in a pillar, in a cloud, and calls them forward, Aaron and Miriam. And he said, Hear my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. But not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Moses fulfilled his responsibilities, and as a type of Christ, he he got direct revelation, and therefore there was a great charge for speaking against Moses. How much more with Jesus Christ? How much more to take his word and twist it into something other than what he has spoken? Moses, for his part, was was a worthy servant. He was a worthy servant to listen to and to follow. Jesus, however, exceeds all of that because he is the fulfillment of it as the antitype. Fulfillment in perfection. 
read it. This was promised of the Messiah that would come and in relationship to, to Moses. 1 Samuel, I'll give you a few texts. 1 Samuel chapter 2, 35. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. You see Jesus? The faithful priest. Who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. He will do so in perfection. And I will build him a sure house. And he'll go in and out before my anointed forever. First Chronicles 17, 14 has a similar concept. I will confirm in him my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. This speaks to the one who perfectly fulfills this type. Consider him it is Jesus Christ. His kingdom isn't temporal. It isn't earthly. It is heavenly. It is eternal. It is forever. And his throne isn't temporary where someone else will take the throne at some point in time. His throne is forever. His kingdom is forever. So listen to those that he has sent and put in charge. But ultimately, the ultimate allegiance is to our Lord Jesus Christ. It is him that we confess. <coughs> Verse 3 of chapter 3. A second reason to consider Jesus, not only his, his faithfulness and fulfilling this, his perfection in his work, but also in chapter 3, verse 3, it compares the glory of Moses with the glory of Jesus in the fact that Jesus is described as the builder of the house. Do you see that? He gets much more glory as the builder of a house, verse 3, has more honor than the house itself. And in parentheses, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Here is another statement of the deity of Jesus Christ, who is indeed the builder, who is indeed God. Th this was promised by, by God that he would indeed build this kind of terminology, build a house. 2 Samuel seven thirteen. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Zechariah six twelve. Thus the Lord says, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out of this place, and he shall build a temple of the Lord, an eternal city, an eternal temple. In relationship to those that are then in the household of God, Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 19, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. He, he, is the, he is the measure of all things. He is the center of all things. He is by which everything else is seen in perspective of the whole structure joined together as it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together 
into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here's a dynamic work. So we consider Jesus in gathering together and trying to build up a spiritual kingdom. This is Christ's work. In fact, I think that's what he said, isn't it? I will build my church. Th this is him doing this. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, beloved, at times it's going to seem like the gates of hell are going to prevail against it. And I'm very concerned about these little ones in days to come. I was talking to some of the parents earlier. I've lived long enough now. I've seen a lot of history. And right now it's going downhill really quick. But I have faith in Christ. I consider him. And I implore you to teach your young ones to consider Jesus Christ. Have him be that solid rock and foundation when everything else is sinking sand. Moses functioned, you see, as a servant of God. But the contrast, chapter 3 and verse 5, is that Jesus is a son, verse 6. He's already made the comparison to angels who, in chapter 2 who are servants of God. And here he talks about this great servant, Moses. He is a great servant. But Jesus is a son. There's a uniqueness to Jesus Christ. And beloved, that's why you need to consider him. And for the sake of time, I just want you to consider one more time from the first chapter so you can see it in God's inspired holy word and not the ramblings of myself. Moses is compared to Jesus as a servant is to a son. The, qual the qualities of the son have been enumerated to some degree in chapter 1 in Hebrews. And I draw your attention there one more time. As you consider Jesus, remember verse 3 of chapter 1. He is the radiance of the glory of God. That's why you consider him. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down. It, it is finished. He sat down in sovereignty at the majesty on high. Having become much more superior to the angels, as the name he inherited is more excellent in theirs. For which of the angels did he say at any time, you're my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I'll be to him a father and he to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Beloved, that is our charge as humanity is to simply worship Jesus Christ. And for those that are in Christ can do so as sons of God. Brought in and only because of our union with Christ. And receive the love of the Father as the Father loves the Son. So those that are in the Beloved then 
our beloved. I challenge you to consider Jesus with great confidence, conviction, compassion, and peace, because he is our hope. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that our hearts and minds, our thoughts, would be on Christ continually. I pray that you would comfort your people who may experience much this week, different things they go through. I, I pray that these, that simple phrase, consider Jesus, will, and all its um, implications will ring through their mind. I pray for those that are outside the faith and faith that people that we come into contact with from time to time. I pray that our love for Christ, our confidence in him, will be such a, a part of our daily conversation that it indeed would call many to, to look and live. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment to think on these things. Respond to Christ the way he has spoken to you. Take a moment privately now. Stand and turn to 320 in our hymnals. Jesus' name above all names. Praise your glorious name and may it be exalted above all. Nehemiah 9 5. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you from this time forth and forevermore. Amen and amen. We're dismissed.